Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. There are many heroes, but there are many more villains during the AIDS epidemic who used the epidemic for their own nasty agenda to demean, to divide, to really ruin people and to hurt people. And you're seeing that again with COVID. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Lucas. It's too early to tell about the long-term impact COVID-19 will have on the world. Though, of course, in the short term, we've already experienced illness and death and social, economic, and political disruption on a massive scale. COVID could become something unimaginable, but the social distancing and other preventative measures we're taking have kept the disease from spiraling completely out of control and there's hope that we'll have effective vaccines within the next year or two. In contrast, the AIDS pandemic, which began in 1981, was allowed to spiral out of control, and it was about 15 years from the beginning of the outbreak until the development of effective treatments in the mid-90s. Even now, nearly 40 years later, there is no vaccine. UN AIDS reports that as of the end of 2018, nearly 75 million people had been infected with HIV, and 32 million had died. Some people have been suggesting that what we're feeling now in the early days of the COVID outbreak must be similar to how it felt at the beginning of the AIDS crisis, but there were crucial differences. In a commentary in the April 2020 edition of Outcasting Overtime, Outcaster Chris said, Imagine how much lower the number of people lost to AIDS might have been if people hadn't hated gay men and had instead recognized AIDS as a worldwide health crisis right from the beginning. And imagine how you, today, dealing with this new coronavirus, would be panicking if COVID were raging in your community, but there was no effective public response. Imagine this sickness and death becoming pervasive among your own friends and family, and asking, pleading, screaming for help, but no one listens. No one really cares about the infected, and the government sits on money that should be released for developing a vaccine, or cure, or for caring for those who are sick. Imagine the rage and grief you'd feel as your friends were getting sick and dying and the rest of the world was ignoring the whole thing. Joining us now to help us understand, and not just imagine, is Jay Blotcher. Jay is a veteran journalist and activist. He arrived in New York City in 1982. He began writing for the New York Native, the leading gay newspaper at the time, and then became associate producer of Our Time, a weekly TV show about LGBT life in New York City hosted by the activist and historian Vito Russo. Jay joined ACT UP New York in 1987, the year the group was founded. He took part in key demonstrations like the FDA protest in 1988, Stop the Church in 1989, and the demonstration at the National Institutes of Health in 1990. He served as the head of ACT UP's media committee, taking the helm from Michelangelo Signorelli. Most recently, Jay was the editor of Rainbow Warrior, My Life in Color, the memoir of Gilbert Baker, creator of the rainbow flag. Jay is also a member of the Gilbert Baker Foundation and co-founded Public Impact Media Consultants, a PR firm for progressive groups and individuals. This is part two of a series. Welcome back to Outcasting, Jay. Thank you. 
When we left off on the last edition of Outcasting, we were talking about the panic in the gay community caused by AIDS as the public continued to be relatively unconcerned, a big contrast with how things are with COVID-19. We also talked about how all of this affected how gay people were growing to see themselves. How many people who had internalized society's hatred of gay people now had an illness that appeared to come from their sexuality, and how society was discriminating against people with that illness. So gay men and other people with HIV were facing discrimination from all angles. But what was the response like from the medical establishment? Was it enough given the circumstances? It became clear early on that the inherent problems of the medical establishment overtaxed too expensive pharmaceutical drugs that were ridiculously priced. All these problems only became exacerbated with the epidemic. We had a system that could not handle the everyday illnesses that were coming in. And suddenly you had an epidemic and there weren't enough hospital beds for these people. People with AIDS were being put in beds, you know, or on gurneys in hallways. You know, it would take uh, days to put them into a bed. And then the issues of uh, testing for new drugs, there were some pharmaceutical companies who thought, wow, if we could find something that took care of AIDS, we could make ourselves a lot of money because pharmaceutical companies are not about helping people. They are about making money. And so an organization, a company called Burroughs Welcome at the time took a drug that the National Cancer Institutes had developed years ago called AZT. And because it had been too toxic, it had been sort of abandoned. And Burroughs Welcome somehow co-opted this drug and began touting it as a drug for HIV. And at the time, around 1986 or so, 87, it was really the only drug available because there was no incentive for a lot of companies to even explore AIDS drugs because there was so much stigma around. Burroughs Welcome um, charged an unfathomable amount. I think it was like $10,000 a year. And it was the highest price for any drug ever. And it was a drug that was very toxic and um, in some cases, it only accelerated the death of people with AIDS. In some cases, people were able to get some momentary relief from their uh, the opportunistic infections that make up AIDS. But AIDS really threw into relief the dire problems that were already developing in our overtaxed, too expensive medical system in America. And then there were clinical trials being done on various other drugs that people hoped would show some promise and they could use these drugs to address AIDS. And so there were clinical trials at various hospitals and at the National Institutes of Health and uh, other federal medical groups. But the people who were being enrolled in these clinical trials, there wasn't a lot of diversity. There weren't a lot of gay men. There weren't a lot of people of color. And there were pretty much no women. Now, that was another big battle. The fact is that it had been presumed, because of demographics, that only men got HIV. And somehow doctors were blind to the fact that women were also getting HIV 
but they were presenting with different symptoms. They had uh, a pelvic inflammatory disease. They had other uh, issues that were quite different from men. And so they're like at, I believe it was the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, they believed that women did not get HIV. So women with all these new illnesses would come to their doctor. And of course, they would not be tested for HIV when the test was finally available. And since they were deemed not immune to HIV, the doctors wouldn't start any protocol to address the HIV. And so activists would say, oh, women don't get HIV, they just die from it. Because there was this fatally erroneous notion that women weren't getting AIDS. And so women were being shut out of clinical trials as well. So these clinical trials were very backward and they were not being effective. Organizations like ACT UP had to fight to get women and people of color into these clinical trials because they were the ones who disproportionately were affected by the epidemic, you know, in addition to gay men. So there was great chaos, just like there is now with our overtaxed medical system, not enough beds for people with COVID-19, not enough access to basic masks for healthcare workers. The fact is that for a while, ACT UP and other organizations were able to slap the medical system into place and make them respond energetically to the uh, AIDS pandemic. But with the arrival of Bush 43 in the White House and all the work that the Republicans have done in the last few years to really undermine the healthcare system, to make it more costly, to make it not work as well, to allow the insurance companies this ridiculous amount of power to deny people health care access and to deny them benefits for health care and the Republicans' insane, obsessive need to dismantle Obamacare brings us to where we are now, where our government cannot properly address the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of cases of COVID that have happened in the last month and a half. So you mentioned the governmental response to COVID-19, but what roles did the federal, state, and local governments play during the AIDS crisis? I I don't really have specifics about that. I can only say that certain organizations on a local level would help their respective communities, but there wasn't any real choreographed national effort. The only thing that I recall is that the Surgeon General at the time, named C. Everett Koop, did something very heroic, very logical, but given the pushback in our Republican-dominated government, it was quite heroic. He sent out a circular to every house in America saying, this is what HIV is, this is how you catch it, this is how to avoid it. And this was life-saving information. And so that was one important effort to just bring people up to speed on what was going on. Because, you know, we didn't have 
the internet back then. We, you know, we didn't have full access to information with the stroke of a few keys on your keyboard. It was a different world, and information traveled much slower. And because HIV was sexually transmitted, or in some cases, you know, transmitted through blood product. America got very puritanical, and the media didn't want to talk about it because it was embarrassing. It was uncomfortable. So people were dying, but the media did not want to really address it. They might talk about HIV, but they wouldn't talk about how you got it and how you could avoid it. The media were not going to talk about condom use. Media were not going to talk about the potential uh, that anal intercourse posed as a high-risk behavior for HIV. There were some real elements of the epidemic that were being muffled, were being suffocated, were being just censored by media and by the government. And so it was important that C. Everett Koop put this plain speaking information out there in every mailbox across America. Other than that, you know, it depends on what type of state you were in or what type of city you were in, what kind of information you got, what kind of health care you received, and what kind of compassion you would get from doctors. You know, needless to say, in places that were conservative or were dominated by religious people, they believed that this was God's retribution. That's always their go-to when something tragic happens. They say, oh, this is God punishing people. There are many heroes, but there are many more villains during the AIDS epidemic who used the epidemic for their own nasty agenda to demean, to divide, to really ruin people and to hurt people. And you're seeing that again with COVID to a certain extent. Early in the outbreak, the community was ignited into action, and groups came into existence like Gay Men's Health Crisis, or GMHC, and ACT UP. How did those groups start, and what roles did they play? Well, I want to be clear that GMHC was not an activist group. GMHC was a service group, and in fact, Larry Kramer, who was one of the co-founders of GMHC, tried to get them to accelerate their agenda to be more outspoken about talking to the gay community about HIV and transmission routes and how certain behavior was dangerous and should be stopped. And the other people at GMHC were horrified that Larry wanted to tell people to stop having sex. And they said, we can't do that. That is not our agenda. And in fact, Larry was uh, drummed out of GMHC. So GMHC was caring for the sick and helping them die, but GMHC was not an activist organization. They were, certainly they were trying to help improve legislation and access to health care, but uh, I would argue that ACT UP, uh, which was founded in March of 1987, six years after the epidemic really blew up, was the first organization to proactively fight a government that was broken and not doing enough to save people with AIDS. 
This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. As the COVID-19 pandemic unfolds around the world, some people have said, this is what it must have felt like at the onset of AIDS. Our guest is Jay Blotcher, a longtime activist who was involved in the struggle against AIDS in New York City. So Jay, tell us about your involvement in actions by ACT UP. Well, the way that I ended up at ACT UP's first demonstration in March of 1987 was because I was a volunteer at the time for GMHC's AIDS Walk. This was an annual fundraising event, and in uh, a year or two before then, I had gotten friends to make pledges, and then I walked and you know, raise some money. And that year, 87, I thought, you know what, I want to do a little bit more. I'm going to do the phones. You know, I'm I'm going to uh, be on their phone bank. And so like two or three times a week, I would go over to the offices of AIDS Walk New York, which was the GMHC special event, and I would make phone calls. And I didn't know much about the epidemic at the time. I knew perhaps just one person who had died. And even then, he died in late 83, and nobody was really sure about it. I had marched in in early 1983, uh, I think perhaps the first protest march for AIDS awareness that happened in uh, April of 1983. But since then, I know that there were people who were buddies at GMHC, and these were people who were running errands for people who were homebound with AIDS and bringing them food, and you know, and the buddies were offering emotional support. And I was very clear with myself that I was too cowardly to do that. I did not think that I could handle the emotional stress of being there for somebody who was dying. And so my pivot was to work the phones at the um, AIDS walk. One night in March, one of my friends, Carl Valentino, who was an, uh, a wonderful activist and a gay teacher, and um, Carl came in and he said, you know, something's happening tomorrow down on Wall Street. I heard that there's an organization that's going to go down there and they're going to protest the fact that pharmaceutical companies are charging so much money for AZT and, you know, we're just not doing enough for this epidemic. Well, something stirred in me. I said, really? Who's this group? And he said, well, they don't have a name yet. I think they were just founded, but they're going to do this. And that, to me, somehow inspired me. And so the next morning, you know, at 7 a.m., I was down on Wall Street with, you know, about 100 other people who were protesting our capitalist system and how if you have money, you're okay. And if you don't have money, then you're a second-class citizen. And if you're a person with HIV in a broken medical system, then you're really at a loss. And so I marched and I protested, and that planted the seeds for me to join ACT UP. And it really just changed my life, and I became an AIDS activist and um, worked to change the system in America to address 
the fact that people with AIDS had no rights to address a broken medical system, to address the ridiculously overpriced uh, pharmaceutical company policies, to address the slow approval process of drugs through the FDA. I mean, there was so much that was wrong, as I said before, and when the epidemic came along, it threw a spotlight on all these things that already had not been working for many years. And now AIDS was overtaxing an already crippled system and people were dying who didn't have to die. And so I harnessed that anger as a member of ACT UP and worked to change the system. Because of this broken medical system, it became necessary for community members to become more informed in some respects than some doctors. How do they do it? You know, ACT UP and other groups at the time really changed the dynamic of the doctor-patient relations. Up until that time, one could argue that doctors were seen as gods. Whatever the doctor said, you would completely agree with and your life was in these doctors' hands, and mostly they would help you, they would save you. With the advent of HIV, and there being not enough information out there, the fact is that if you want to learn more about HIV, you weren't going to learn that in college, and if you were a doctor who was already out of college, you certainly had no place to go to learn this. You had to learn it yourself. There had to be a clearinghouse of information, the members of ACT UP became experts to the extent that they were learning more than doctors. They were becoming experts at the greatest minutiae surrounding the epidemic, around the virus, around certain drugs that had been shown to be promising in clinical trials. And these people... They were not medical people. My colleagues, my comrades in ACT UP were musicians, or they were actors, or they were in the financial world, or they were writers, or they were cabaret stars. And here they were faced with the prospect of dying from a disease that the government didn't care enough to throw research money at. And they realized that if they didn't learn this information, then nobody was going to. And these people became the most amazing experts on the subject to the extent that the pharmaceutical companies and the federal uh, medical organizations finally opened their doors and let these people sit at their boardroom tables because they realized that they had a command of the issue and were finding, making uh, progress and, and, and finding results and really cracking the code to a lot of these problems. In fact, the, the work that AIDS activists did finally led to the discovery in, I'd say, 1996 of protease inhibitors, the so-called AIDS cocktail, which really changed the face of the epidemic and saved countless lives. People who were on their deathbeds were administered protease inhibitors and the antiretrovirals and uh, 
came to life again. It was called the Lazarus Effect. So um, it, it really is an amazing how people with AIDS became the experts in the absence of doctors doing enough. Sometimes they pursued very unconventional routes to learn this information. They were willing to look at stuff that maybe hadn't been tried in large clinical trials yet. Perhaps the sampling of people who had taken a certain drug was small, but we're, we were seeing some a glimmer of hope. Frankly, when you're facing certain death, you'll try anything. And so ACT UP also fought to get more compassionate uh, use or, or compassionate distribution of certain drugs. You know, in clinical trials, the way that they're conducted is that you give ha- you know, half the people the drug and then you give half the people a placebo. And so then you can see how the results are. Well, if you're dealing with people who have HIV, what is more cold and bloodless than giving a placebo to somebody with HIV and then having them die so that you can uh, say, oh, well, you know, that's good for my data. Well, sorry they died, but at least now we know. These were horrific emergency times, and we had to, we ACT UP was demanding that all the rules be rewritten to accommodate this unparalleled virus and pandemic. So, um, you know, ACT UP worked hard to fight some of the longstanding unjust ways that the medical establishment carried itself and carried the way it uh, cared for people or didn't care for people, uh, you know, how it let people down in its pursuit of science, in its pursuit of money, in in its pursuit of uh, supporting the pharmaceutical world. You know, not only did we challenge doctors and ju- and not say, oh, doctor, you're all powerful and I'm going to listen to you. People with AIDS were learning themselves how to take care of themselves. And they'd go into a doctor and say, have you heard of this? Find out about this drug. I want to try this drug. And we were also challenging the pharmaceutical companies. In the United States, the pharmaceutical companies have this irrational outlandish amount of autonomy, they can decide how much a drug costs and charge it. In Europe, you will find that the drug companies have to open their books to the governments and justify how much they spent on research and development for their drugs and then charge a fee that is commensurate with those research and development expenses. But in the United States, pharmaceutical companies have this horrific uh, amount of uh, autonomy, and that's why they can price gouge Americans who are sick and dying. Our times are not again. We'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks for joining us, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about our collective history. That's it for this edition of Outcasting. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Amelie, Sarah 1, Sarah 2, Chris, Lil, Thorne, Justin, Brian, and me, Lucas. 
Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Lucas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.